Well, good morning again for those of you who are joining us a little later today. Um, we welcome you to 59th Street Church as we continue in our sermon series, Greater Than, uh, which explores how Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And for the past two weeks, we've kind of seen the author. He, he's been, well, maybe past three weeks, uh, last week, Christian Anderson was here. Uh, but for the past few weeks, we've kind of seen the author paint in these broad strokes. He's giving these very broad arguments, right? We saw that the free gifts that Christ gives us of forgiveness, of new hearts, and of a personal knowledge of God, uh, all of this comes from the perfect sacrifice of Christ, right? These gifts were only possible through the sacrifice of Christ. And today we're going to be covering the now what, or maybe the so what aspect of our series, right? Christ died for us. Christ gave us these gifts. Now what? What are we supposed to do with this? What are we, what are we supposed to do with all these new things as believers? And today we're going to be taking a look at specifically um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. That's going to be kind of the focal point of our, of our sermon here today. But I think it might be appropriate for us just to kind of read the whole chapter uh, to, get a, to get a feel for the author's arguments and thought process. There's going to be a lot of reading here today, um, so buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Starting from verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law, in the Old Testament law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we who have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, priests stand and perform his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time, speaking of Christ, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So, so far from, from verses 1 to 18, he kind of gives a recap, basically, of literally everything we've said these past few weeks. All right, here's, here's where he presents the now what. Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have reached, uh, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fear expectation, fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the laws of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and, a God, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you received the lights when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along, though, uh, along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but, but by my righteous one will live by faith. And I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Wow, that's a lot of uh, verses. So as I said earlier before, um, in the first half of chapter 10, right, we see that the author gives a recap of everything we've discussed so far. But as he reaches the second half of the chapter, starting from verse 19, we reach the now what, or the so what part of the book. The author, he's been creating this long and winding path of discussing how Christ is greater than this or Christ is greater than that. And in the past two weeks, um, we talked about how Christ is the greater sacrifice and the greater gifts and promises that come with the sacrifice. But how does all these things, how does this knowledge of God, how do all these gifts influence how we live as Christians? See, the author, he, he isn't interested in theological arguments. The author isn't interested in cool facts about God. The author creates all of this theology because of how theology intersects and plays out in our lives. And this is an incredibly important part of our faith, how our knowledge of God influences how we live our lives. And so in verses 22 to 24, uh, 24, the author presents us with three let us statements. And one of the first thing the author encourages us to do is to have confident worship. And the reason we are to have confident worship is that we now have access to God's true temple, not, not a physical temple, to God's true temple through the sacrifice of Christ's body, right? This is what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, right? That 
through Christ's body, we now have the forgiveness of sins, a new heart, and the ability to know God. And when we do have these new gifts, we're encouraged not to squander it, but we're encouraged to come before God. Rather than coming to the temple of God to offer sacrifices to atone for our guilt, we come to the true temple of God with hearts of gladness and with hearts of praise. And so when we come before God and when we worship him, as we did earlier before, you know, it's not just about singing songs, right? But it's actually about proclaiming the truth of our faith. We proclaim the truth that we have been indeed been saved by grace and through grace. We proclaim the truth that we are now subjected to God's love as opposed to his anger. We proclaim the truth that we are now recipients of a greater world to come where we will one day worship God in a new heaven and a new earth. And we do this worship. We worship God with joy. But we also worship God with confidence knowing that these gifts are given to us freely through our high priest, who is Jesus Christ. And in light of these incredible gifts, we reach our second let us statement. We're now called by the author to have unswerving faith. And the reason we're called to have this unswerving faith, he actually gives us three reasons in our passage here today. The first reason we're called to be faithful is that Christ is first faithful to us. Our author tells us in verse 23 that we should hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. See, unlike most religions, and also unlike most relationships, human relationships, uh, we do not actually have to earn faithfulness from another party by doing good deeds or kind acts. Well, actually, that's how it works in normal relationships. We try to earn uh, their faithfulness by doing good deeds and kind acts. But one of the distinctive parts of Christianity is that Christ is first faithful to us. Before we are cleansed, before we're even holy, while we are still corrupt and evil, Christ already pledges his faithfulness to us by being willing to die on our behalf. Before we've done anything at all. And so in our love, and in our response back to Christ, we respond to his faithfulness with our own faithfulness. But along with that, our author also presents to us another reason for remaining faithful. And that is, unfortunately, it is the reality of punishment. Um, in verses 26 to 27, our, our author goes on to say, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And the phrase, uh, deliberately keep on sinning, um, it's, it, it actually doesn't mean what you think it is, what you think it means. Most of us just think it means, you know, if we continue to sin, knowing that we're sinning. That's actually not what the author is talking about. Um, the author is actually referring to a verse in the Old Testament, um, in Numbers chapter 15, where God warns the people who sin deliberately, or literally in, in, uh, in Hebrew, to sin with a high hand. And what this basically means is that these are people who raise their hands against God, people who deliberately set themselves before him and against him. And so the picture that we get is that People who sin deliberately are people who have heard the truth of the gospel, who might have even accepted 
the truth of the gospel in the past, but they now deliberately set themselves up against God as his opponent, as his enemy. And there is, as our author says, there is no sacrifice for sin is left. There's no sacrifice other than Christ. There's no way, there's no other way to make up for wrongdoing. Christ is the only way. And because he is the only way to reject God, to raise your hand against God, is to unfortunately sow one's own seeds of destruction. You see, God is not an evil deity who sends people to judgment for no reason. If one chooses, if we choose not to accept the forgiveness of sins that comes with abiding in Christ's faithfulness, then we have to pay the consequences of our own actions. We'll have to pay the penalty of our own wrongdoings as God exacts his justice. And truly, as our, as our author says, you know, it is, it's truly a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But at the same time, it is also a blessed thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because we are also called to be faithful so that we can receive the promised reward. And the treasure we store up in heaven isn't, isn't just the promise of eternal life. That, that is one promise amongst many. The true treasure we all as Christians seek is to finally be able to have true fellowship with our God. Although we are indeed able to enter into the presence of God here today through prayer or through worship, like the veil that separates the inner temple from the outer temple, we are still separated from God. You know, he, you know this world is, is still broken. And so we as Christians, we, all of us, we longingly wait for the day where not only do we go to heaven, but we also longingly wait for the day where God recreates heaven and earth as a whole, where one day we will have new bodies, where one day we'll be able to walk alongside God in a new garden in the cool of the day, to be able to speak to him as you would with your friends or with me. Isn't that the craziest or the most beautiful, the most blessed promise given to us. But here lies, it's, it's so funny, here lies one of the greatest temptations too, right? If, you, if we keep thinking of all this glory and love that awaits us, some of us might be tempted to say like, man, what's, what's even the point of living, right? Like, why, why even live? You know, there's so many better things waiting for me in heaven. What's, what's the point of staying here on earth? And so we see that in order to encourage us to keep on living, um, our author, he actually gives us a final call while we're still here on earth. And this call is to be one body. Why not just leave our earthly tethers and be with God? Because we recognize that our faith is actually not just individual, but it's also collective. We collectively, all of us here gathered today, we are the one body of Christ. And in light of this, our author, he actually gives us our final let us statement as he tells us, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Earlier in our, in our sermon series, we mentioned how one of the, uh, the largest reasons, the biggest reasons why the book of Hebrews was written was to encourage believers to come back to the faith. Right? For, some, for one reason or another, all these Jews, they were returning back. Actually, all these Christians were returning back to Judaism, um, whether that's through cultural pressure or, or pressures from violent persecutions. 
and to encourage these believers who are standing on the edge of the cliff, not, not sure whether they should fully give themselves to God or go back to their old days, the author reminds them to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And one of the ways the author does this is by reminding them of the wonderful works that they have already done in the past when they received the gospel, right? The author talks and he says that when they saw their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ face insults and persecutions, these Christians willingly stood side by side with them in the line of fire. When they saw their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ being sent into prison for their faith, they would literally, they would literally join them in prison voluntarily. Who does this? But one who has really seen the gospel. And the thing is, this is done not because there is a greater reward or greater treasures in heaven, but because they realize that faith is actually a team effort. It is true that when we enter into a relationship with God, it is a personal relationship between me, me and God, where I am also held accountable by God. But just because this faith journey we travel on is deeply personal, it does not mean that we have to travel this journey alone. Uh, some of you might know, but for those who don't, um, I love stories where people overcome extremely difficult situations. And one of the most extreme, one of the most difficult situations people throw themselves in willingly, at least in the United States, um, is joining the Navy SEALs, one of the most elite forces uh, in the world. Um, they actually have a 75% dropout rate amongst the most mentally tough and the most physically tough people in the world, right? Imagine, you know, a, a group of the most extraordinary people in the United States joining this force and 75% of them drop out. We're talking about like the best of the best and they drop out, 75% of them. And one characteristic that determines whether people drop out or are able to persevere through the training is the person's ability to have camaraderie or the ability to develop mutual trust and friendship with people who you spend a lot of time with. And so for the Navy SEALs, you would see certain applicants. You know, they see this year after year. They would see certain applicants. They would seal their resolve. They would come with a very individualistic mindset, right? They would isolate themselves from the rest of the group and not rely on anyone but themselves, just to show how, how mentally tough they are, how physically tough they are, how strong they are, right? We all love stories like this. Unfortunately, by and far, all of these individualistic people, they drop out, they quit within the first five days. Before, before Friday even hits, they're gone. But the question is, what are the types of people who stay, who finish the training, and become one of the most elite forces in the world? It's not the strongest person in the group. It's not the varsity athlete. It's not the intellectual genius. It's the type of person who encourages their compatriots to fight through the pain, the type of person who helps their fellow soldier bear a burden that is too much for one single person. The type of person who's able to bring humor and life to a dark situation. And so we see that more than just personal or individual strength, it is group strength 
that allowed these people to endure the most grueling training that is legally allowable. People actually die from this training. It's crazy. And so it is the same thing with our faith. As we meet together Sunday morning or during the midweek, all of us, we are all going through trials of every kind. And although our American ideology makes us fall into this trap of trying to solve everything by ourselves, rely on our own strength and our own resolve, it is truly through the encouragement and help of our fellow brothers and sisters here today that allow us to run and to finish this race of faith strong. It is the ability to offer, and it's also the ability and the humility to receive love during difficult times. It is the ability to bear each other's burdens that makes us stronger as a group. It is the ability to offer words of wisdom in confusing times. It's the ability to bring humor and laughter that gives us the strength to see tomorrow. And so brothers and sisters, as the author of Hebrews encouraged his people nearly 2,000 years ago, so I encourage you all today as well to consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. And as we see the coming of Christ come literally closer each and every single passing day, let us encourage each other to run and to finish this race of faith strong together. If even Jesus needed the help of Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross up to Golgotha, how much more do we need the help of our fellow brothers and sisters here today to carry our cross through life. And so out of mutual love and out of mutual encouragement to one another, I wanna end with this final word from our author here today, who says to us that we are the ones who do not shrink back and are not destroyed to those who have come to faith and are saved. Why don't we come together in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that we have all these tremendous gifts and promises given to us through the death of your Son. Uh, brings within us a sense of unworthiness that you have given us so much and yet ask for so little. And so we pray, Father, that as we gather together as a church, as one body, let us encourage one another. Let us help each other carry our crosses, help each other carry our burdens, Father. Let us learn to love one another as we love ourselves and so that we can run this race of faith strong and end it together strong, so that we may delight together as one group to share in the treasures that are stored up, not just for me, but for us in heaven. Give us the faith to persevere. Give us the strength to move on, to continue to take each step forward, although adversity and calamity comes our way. But Father, also give us the humility in our hearts to drop this individualistic mindset, to be able to come to one another and ask for help, even if it is just only for a word of prayer. So I pray, Father, that as we gather together as one body here today, that you will lift us up collectively. We know that you, Lord, you are here today as well, and that you are here with our burdens, that you carry our burdens as well, and you have carried it on the cross. So we pray that you'll continue to uh, give us strength. I pray that you'll continue to give us faith and I pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.